Looks like everybody's found the watering hole, and that's good. You don't have to tell an animal out in the Sahara where the watering hole is. They all know, you know. We're not far from them, are we? You know, when you ask somebody these days, how are you, how are you feeling? And they say, feeling great. Man, you need to celebrate that with them because COVID is just around the corner, it seems like. And uh, so it's a big deal to be healthy these days. My mom calls it the COVID. I got the COVID. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer and get started that we do want to welcome our live stream audience watching us tonight, joining in with us. We're glad to have you. And uh, don't say that and take it for granted. We have people who listen in from different parts of the, of the country, but also people who are local, who uh, this is their only way of connecting in. They can't get out on Wednesday nights for different reasons. So we're just glad that they're with us. Father, tonight as we open the Word of God, may it come alive. May it be quickened and sharpened in our hearts. We know that it is quick. We know that it is sharp. We know that it's a double-edged sword. The question is, will we let you do some surgery? And I pray that tonight we would uh, take in the Word and we would chew it up and that we would see how you're speaking to us individually. And we thank you for your love. We thank you for your, your uh, encouragement. But we also thank you for your correction that's needed from time to time. And we pray that tonight this would be a profitable evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wednesday night Bible study, Book of Esther. Tonight we're going to cover the introduction and hopefully get to chapter 1. And, uh, and then next week, uh, Scott Walker, one, uh, one of our elders, Scott's going to teach next week. It's not that I can't be here. Uh, I just want to share the series with him. So he and I are going to go back and forth and just share in this, and it kind of keeps it fresh for you. But uh, he'll, he'll cover wherever I leave off tonight. He'll pick up and take it. But hopefully he'll be starting at chapter 2 next week. So tonight we launch into this new study from the Bible, the book of Esther. Uh, there are only two books in the entire Bible that have the names of women. And uh, this is, what, what are the two books? I wonder if we can remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we just studied Ruth, so... Esther, and then, you know, you got to throw in Ezra and Nehemiah. They are in the same time frame, and we're going to actually start studying Nehemiah on the second Sunday of September, so that's kind of exciting too. So we're kind of in this place in the Old Testament, and it's a really good place. I think we're going to enjoy this series. Now, the writer of the book of Esther is unclear. Uh, it's plausible that Ezra or Nehemiah or Mordecai, who is a character in the story of the book of Esther. One of those three wrote this, this book. Now, we don't know for sure, but, but when you think about, let me share with you, whoever this author is, they had to have an, an in-depth knowledge of the Persian culture and of its capital, which is Shushan. Uh, at the same time, they had a great understanding of Hebrew and the customs and the history of the Jews. Um, that, that's why one of the three men that I mentioned earlier is believed to be the author, because they fit that description. But also, whoever wrote this has a very sympathetic heart to the Jews, and that's because of the storyline. This story really does move your heart 
in favor of God's people because in this story, uh, the enemy, Satan, is trying to completely annihilate the nation of Israel. He's trying to kill off all the Jews. And so uh, it's very important that we see this for what it is. Now, the Jews are in Persia, which formerly was Babylonia had, had the, all the Jews. They're the ones that took them captive. And now uh, the Persian Empire has risen up, and it's greater than the Babylonian Empire. And so there were many Jews who were given positions of leadership under those two empires. Uh, let me give you some names that you might know. How about Ezra? How about Nehemiah? How about Daniel? Okay. Another person who's been given position of leadership. Let me give you three names. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Are those names familiar to you? Um, let me say it in the, in the uh, Babylonian tongue. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, their Hebrew names uh, were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So these are just some of the folks that God used. While they were in captivity, God raised up these Jewish leaders, and they, they represented God in a pagan world. The greatest empires at that time, the Babylonian and the, the uh, Persian Empire. And God raised these men up to be in leadership. Now, uh, the purpose of the book of Esther is to display the providence of God, especially in regard to His chosen people, the Jews. Interestingly, the name of God is never spoken in the entire book. Isn't that interesting? You'll never see any reference to God in the book. But this book is absolutely filled with example and foreshadowing of the providential hand of God, the sovereignty of God, and how He is going to uh, bring Messiah. Uh, the book of Esther uh, records the institution, an institution that was started among the, uh, many of the Jews, was started in this book, and it's the Feast of Purim, or Purim. And uh, in the Feast of Purim, that's a holiday uh, that celebrates the deliverance of the Jews uh, that actually were delivered in the book of Esther. And so it's interesting. You ever heard of Purim before? Of course. Uh, it's also known as the Feast of Lots. That's what Purim means, Lots. Uh, the feast is not mentioned in the New Testament at all. So it's not one of the major Jewish feasts. It is a feast of the Jews celebrated as a holiday, but not as a major spiritual uh, feast. Um, also, this celebration of Purim uh, is, is a quite lively event. A lot of interesting things about this, this particular feast of the Jews. It involves giving of gifts. It involves uh, giving of food to friends. Uh, it's all about charity to the poor, and it's surrounded by a huge meal. So it's an event with a big meal, okay? When the book of Esther is read, uh, and they read it during the Feast of Purim, okay? When it's read, interestingly, whenever the name Mordecai is mentioned, all the people at the feast celebrate. Woo! Every time his name is mentioned, you celebrate. Then whenever uh, Haman is mentioned, 
That's exactly right. They they freak out. They <laughs> they actually have these little things that make noise to try to drown out the name Haman. So they'll be reading along, and they know the name's coming. As soon as they start to say the name, they start, you know, really interesting. And uh, it, that thing is actually called a Rahashan, and, or in our language, it would be Gragger, G-R-A-G-G-E-R. And it helps to drown out the name of Haman, which is a, really a foreshadowing of Satan. So... Uh, let's keep moving here. Just more introduction for you. I think it's good to lay the foundation before we actually get into the text. It helps us. Uh, this event of Purim is also surrounded by consuming large amounts of alcohol. Okay, so there are some Jews who don't celebrate it the way others do, but there's a whole group that really gets excited about this. And here's what they say <clears throat> about the alcohol consumed during the Feast of Purim. They say that one should drink until cursed is Haman sounds the same as blessed is Mordecai. So when you get to a point where it doesn't matter which one you're saying, you're, they're all the same, then you know you, you, you really arrived at that event. So it is a consumption of alcohol. That's what this event's about. Uh, there's dancing, there's music, there's parades, people dressing in costume. So this is really a big event. For the Jews, and many Jews celebrate it to this day. So now let's move on. The book of Esther. The book of Esther gives us a foreshadowing. I want to talk to you about that for a second. We're given a behind the scenes look at the ongoing struggle of Satan against the purposes and the plans of God, against the people of God, and against. Uh, God's promised Messiah. So this, this whole story, you, you can see the underworkings of the story is Satan at work trying to knock off anything to do with God, especially God's people. He wants to annihilate the Jews. And he wants to, because if he can annihilate the Jews, there is no Messiah. Messiah comes through the Jews. So you get a feel for where this is going in this story. It is a compelling story. Everybody likes a, a good story, right? You're going to love this story. This is a great story. Um, just as Haman plotted against the Jews in order to destroy them, so Satan has set himself up against Christ and God's people. Just as Haman is defeated, uh, he built a gallows for one purpose, to kill Mordecai. Mordecai would be uh, the relative to Esther who actually raised her after her father died. She was orphaned, and he took over and raised her. And he also was able to guide her all the way to the position of queen of the empire. And, uh, but, 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 but this man, Haman, who was given the responsibility of overseeing uh, all the events and also trying to do the work for the king that the king didn't, didn't have time to do, uh, he, he in particular wanted to take out the Jews. And so, interestingly, uh, just as Haman defeated on the gallows that he built for Mordecai, uh, we also see Christ defeating Satan on the cross. So here's these foreshadowings that are happening. I love Colossians 2, 14 through 15. Let me read it for you. Colossians 2, 14 through 15. Having canceled the written code, 
with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that would be Satan and his demonic forces, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Well, the same thing happens in the story of Esther. It's powerful. And then also, just as Haman was hanged on the gallows that he built for Mordecai, so the devil was crushed by the cross he erected to destroy Jesus. So there's a wonderful foreshadowing that occurs in this story. Interesting that it's, there's no mention of Messiah, there's no mention of God, no mention of the Almighty, no mention of that at all. Yet it's all about that. And that's the beauty of the Bible. God is seen in so many different ways throughout the Scriptures. So now, let's go back and connect the dots to the Babylonian captivity, which was a time in Israel's history when Jews were taken captive, and we just studied all this in the, the Kings, and they were taken ca captive by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Uh, it's, it's an important period of biblical history because both the exile captivity and the return and restoration of the Jewish nation were all fulfillments of the Old Testament. This story occurs in the midst of all of that, okay? God used Babylon as his agent to judge Israel for their sins of idolatry and rebellion against him. When they returned after this experience in Esther, after their experiences in Babylon and Persia, they returned back to, to the land of the Jews. No longer did they commit idol worship. They changed. The 70 years that God took them away had an impact on them. And that's really important. So this is part of that story where God changed His people, okay? Uh, there were actually several different times during this period when the Jews were exiled. We often think of the Jewish exile or the captivity being this, this one event where all the Jews are hauled off to Babylon. That's not the case. It's actually three different waves, different waves that hit uh, Jerusalem uh, and Judea. Uh, it started in 607 B.C., and it, it ended in 586 B.C. That's when the final group was taken out of Jerusalem, okay? Uh, with each of those rebellions, uh, Nebuchadnezzar would send his army, and he would bring more Jews in to Babylon and change their names, change their whole lives. And that was the goal, was to help them to not remember their own people, their own nation, their ancestors, their history, not even to know which tribe they are from. And so it's very interesting how they did that. And this was all God's plan. Uh, the prophecy in Scripture was that the Jewish people would be allowed to return after 70 years of exile. And that prophecy was fulfilled in 537 B.C., and that they returned under, now it was no longer the Babylonian uh, Empire, it was the Persian Empire that rose up, uh, who, over, who conquered the Babylonian Empire. Now it's under King Cyrus of Persia that they were released to go back, just as the prophecy had been given. So everything God said regarding them being hauled off as exiles to them being uh, escorted back, all of it in the Scripture came true, every bit of it, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, when they returned, they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, 
uh, Nehemiah uh, orchestrated that. Ezra helped restore them with the revival that they had at the return of God's Word when they began to read the Word of God once again, the Old Testament scrolls, and, and they had a restoration. It was incredible. Now, uh, again, the events recorded in this particular book that we're about to study are during that period of the Persian Empire being in power. And we're going to see all of this. Uh, Esther and Exodus both chronicle how vigorously foreign powers tried to eliminate the Jewish race and how God sovereignly preserved His people in accordance with His covenant that He made with Abraham. And so th this is just another example of how God protects those whom He loves. And He is their Father, and He did watch over them. And even today, people who want to look down upon the Jews and say that the church is the new, we're the new Jews, you know, that we've replaced the Jews, the church, that's not true. This is a period of time when God has raised up a church age, reaching out to the Gentiles and bringing them into His family. But never does God completely forget the Jews. In the end, in Revelation and in Daniel, we know that in the end, Jews will come to Christ many Jews. It'll be one of the greatest outpourings of evangelism on the face of the earth. So God has not just quit on the Jews. Uh, he will come back and He will restore those who, who repent. And that's pretty exciting. Now, the practical application of this book is that it shows the choice we make between seeing the hand of God in our circumstances and, and then just calling them mere coincidences. I'm going to tell you this. This is what sovereign means. Sovereign means you are over everything. It means that you have complete control of everything. It means there's no such thing as chance. God knows everything that happens, and God has a plan to use everything. And in more cases than we're willing to admit, God causes those circumstances to take place in our lives. God is constantly trying to grow us, to mature us, to strengthen our faith in Him. And the whole book of Esther is about that. God is using this terrible event that happens to the Jews in the land. And God shows His faithfulness and He shows that there's no mere coincidences. This is my hand at work among you and I will save you because I'm your God and I have a plan. And it's interesting that when the Babylonian uh, Empire fell and then the Persian Empire, but see, there was a time for Babylon to come in and take the Jews captive for 70 years. And then what did God do? He fulfilled His promise and said, because the Babylonians were such an arrogant people who didn't trust Him, He took them out with the Persians. So the very ones He used to correct the Jews, He then corrected them. All of that was orchestrated by God. I want you to think about it in a personal way. There's never been a single event in your life that God is not fully aware of. And God was not ready 
to come alongside you. Now, here's where the, 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 the whole message of wealth and prosperity can really mess up Christians because it's false doctrine. This idea that you're supposed to just be blessed and have everything go your way and get more cars, have more money, have a better job, and everything's that that's really what it's, God's about. That is not what God is about. God oftentimes orders up trouble and trial in our lives. Remember that the blind man and the disciples looked at Jesus seeing this blind man and said, so Lord, what's the story on this guy? Was it him? Did he commit a sin? Or was it his parents that he would be blind? You know what Jesus' response was? The Lord made him blind. God did it so that today he might manifest his glory through this man and God, Jesus healed him. All of that was God's doing. That man went through most of his life blind and God was behind it. This is the part of the doctrine of God that oftentimes we don't want to hear or we have never heard. But God uses trials, terrible, terrible events. Not one of them was, was when God was sleeping. That's why it happened. Or God didn't, wasn't fully aware what was going to happen. God knew everything about that event before it happened. And yet God had a plan through it. If we were to go through this room and just have several of you share testimonies of your past and some of the trials that you've had to face in your life, some of the setbacks, some of the surprises that have come your way, we'd probably spend the next two hours hearing stories. And yet tonight, here you are wanting to study the Word of God. God has used those events in your life. So get out of your head this idea that this life is supposed to be all perfect and fun and, and just more money and better job and more popularity and that's all God wants to give me. No, God is not a genie in the bottle to please us. We are tools in His hand to bring glory to His name, not ours. And so sometimes those tools, they get broken. And they're broken that God might be glorified. So uh, that's why in the last, well, since November, really, so it started in 2022, but 2023 for me has been a physically trying uh, period in my life. I don't complain because my God is at work. And there's not a single thing. Two weeks ago, when I flew out to Chicago with my wife, I was so excited to have you know six, seven days with my grandkids and my daughter and her husband. And uh, I get there to the hotel, and I'm feeling a little tightness in my throat. And I'm thinking, man, they've got some kind of a, you know, allergy. Some something's in the air out here, and man, it's going to tighten me up. I'm going to have a sinus infection. And uh, by the next night, I'm laying in bed like this just chilled, shaking. Greeny was sleeping like a log. And, and uh, got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, 
and I was so filled up, my ears, the pressure on my ears was so great, I get in the bathroom and fall over. Didn't even know I fell over till I was halfway down because it's dark in the room. You know, I didn't want to turn the light on and wake, wake her up and fell down in the bathroom. And uh, that was a mess because I broke the, the, the seat cover on the toilet. My, my elbow hit it. And then I knocked the, the, the toilet roll holder off the wall with my head. So, so sorry for all the graphic description, but, but I was a mess. She did wake up. She heard the thud. And my sister, Dana, had flown in from, from Alabama, and so we were all there together in that room. And they came running in, and sure enough, here I am laying on the floor, you know. Thank the Lord I wasn't, no great injuries there. That's great. Got a little bruise, you know, and a little, my noggin was hurt a little bit, but I've got such a hard head, that was no big deal. And so, but see, none of that. I, mean, I only got to see my grands for three days. And even the three days I saw them, you guys know what it's like to come out of COVID. It can really linger the, the, the recovery period, the weariness, the being tired. And that's what I felt. And those little kids, they're precious, all five of them. And man, I'd sit in the chair and all of them would just come up and just get all over me. And so for three days, I got, but my time with them was cut in half from what I wanted. But God is at work. How can I complain knowing that my God is sovereign? This was not a mistake. He's going to use it for his glory. And so that's where I was. I'm not, now, don't get me wrong, laying in a hotel room for three straight days, not being able to get out of bed, I was not a happy camper because I wanted to get up and go and I couldn't. So don't think I'm this perfect person. You, of course, as if you didn't know that, you know, already. But uh, uh, anyway, so that's, that's what this book is all about. It's all about God's hand at work, even when his name's not mentioned. Don't think for a second, God's not working. He is working, and He provides providential care for us who, who call upon His name, who surrender to Him. And sometimes that providential care comes through the form of a trial because He's growing us, He's teaching us. So let's go to chapter 1. Let's try to spend the, the second half of our hour in chapter 1. Let's get started. It says, now in the days of, ah, ah, this is a really tough name, Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, uh, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Think about that. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. So here we have King Ahasuerus, who's more commonly known as Xerxes. Okay, that's who he is, Xerxes. He inherited, it's the Persian Empire, he inherited this vast Persian Empire from his father Darius I, who's mentioned in passages such as in Ezra, and also in Daniel, and also in Haggai. Okay, The fact of the existence of this king and circumstances is extremely well attested. Archaeologists have discovered the ruins of the very palace where these events took place. So this is not a fairy tale story that somebody made up. This is not some Jewish tradition story that they tell, and some of it might be true, and large parts of it are not true. No, this is an accurate story told by somebody who was there 
and these people are real. These were real leaders, okay? Uh, now, it was during this period of time that Ahasuerus was planning for an invasion of Greece, which would have taken place several years later. At this time, the city of Athens was in its classical glory, and in Greece, they were celebrating the 79th Olympic Games. Isn't that interesting? Puts it Kind of puts a, a reality on the story, you know? Uh, also, at this time, the Persian Empire was the largest the, the world had ever seen up to that point in time. It covered what we would call today, how big was the, Roman, the Persian Empire? Here it is, listen. It covered Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, and Israel. Huge, huge kingdom. It also covered parts of the modern-day Egypt, Sudan, Libya, and Arabia. So it also expanded down south and into Africa. So this is a period of time when Ezra returned to Jerusalem after it had been conquered by the Babylonians. In 40 years, under the successor of Ahasuerus, uh, Nehemiah would return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the previously conquered city. So, verse 3, In the third year of his reign... He gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and the media, and the, uh, or the Medes, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. So all the important people were at this feast. All of the dignitaries, everybody that was important, coming from different lands. Think about this now. All these different nations, these lands that these people are under the Persian Empire. Their representatives are here. So this is a huge feast, okay? And verse 4, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, that would have been, listen, a feast that lasted 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people pr uh, present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, he gave a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So a feast, a, a dinner, a seven-day dinner. I met uh, some folks out in, uh, when I finally, the fourth morning got up and I felt like I could go downstairs and get a little bite to eat. I, I feel so much better. And, and not knowing at that time that I had COVID. I took the test later that day and discovered, uh-oh. But I went down and sat in by myself in the corner and because I was still not feeling all that great, but I was better. And there was a, a, a family, a large family sitting at a table about as far away as where Gordon uh, is sitting and Barbara. And uh, so I just had to talk to somebody, man, three days in a hotel room. Are you kidding? I said, hey, folks, where are you from? And they said, we're from Pakistan. And we carried on a conversation. And they were, I said, why are you here? And they, and, and you know, just west of, of Chicago, they said, because uh, a relative is getting married, and it's a five-day event. And they have five different locations that they rent, and each day they have a feast, and they have celebration, they have parties. Delaney, one day you're going to get married, honey. Could you imagine having five days of celebration for your wedding? <laughs> Could you imagine that? That's, that's the, the cool thing about this. So, And they were all excited. Why? Because they didn't have to pay for it. They just got to come from where, they were from Virginia. They came from Virginia. They were just excited to celebrate with all the family. 
It, well, that's kind of in a small way what we're talking about here, okay? So uh, there were white uh, cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry. I didn't look that up. I don't have a clue what it means. Uh, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. See, here's the deal. Uh, the Persian king is wanting to impress all the people that are now part of his empire. I want you to know how great, how vast, how powerful your, the empire is that you belong to. And more than importantly, point to himself, how great he was, okay? And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. Here it is. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of the palace to do as, as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So the first feast was for all the government officials where Ahasuerus showed off the glory and the splendor of the land, of all, all that was going on. And then uh, that feast lasted for 180 days. Then the second feast was for the citizens of the capital city, and it lasted for seven days. And then there's a third feast, and that's the one that his wife Vashti threw for all the women. Okay, so the king wanted to impress his subjects. He wanted to impress the dignitaries coming from afar. And, and he wanted his wife, who was beautiful, to hold a feast for all the women that they might really look up to her, you know, to see who she was and how important she was. So it's really bringing attention to he and his wife of the power, the splendor, the wisdom, the, 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 the majesty, and the generosity of them having these great feasts. Now, this is interesting, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus was saying, you're not supposed to be like the Gentiles, like the ones who have power, the ones who have authority, they love to hold that over their people. They love to bring all the attention back to them. You as a Christian are not to be like that. You're to love everybody the same. And it's not about you. It's about the real king, Jesus, right? So this is a little, there's a little doubt that Ahasuerus paid for this feast out of the public treasury. Uh, he, he probably didn't shell it out of his own pocket. He made sure that the people and all their taxes went to good things which are big feasts, okay? Uh, some things never change. Amen. Okay, moving on. Interestingly, it was common that in the first feast, each guest was obliged to have a drink with the current round or else they would be asked to leave the party. You had to drink or you go home, okay? Now, get this. At the second feast, the king decreed that each man could drink as he pleased, and you were expected to get drunk. Go ahead. Now, if you didn't want to drink, you just hid that. You didn't really show that off, and maybe you acted a little drunk. I don't know. But pretty much they all got drunk. They, they were blitzed, including the king. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women, uh, and it was for the women in the royal palace and was conducted by the wife of the king. 
Verse 10, on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Okay, so after seven days of, of drinking, he's really happy. He's really sauced, so to speak. And so here's what he does. He commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, and Karkos, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. He said, I want you to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, he's drunk. All the men in the room are drunk. Tradition says that they were all bragging on which women in the world were the prettiest. And the king said, well, I'll have the queen come out. You'll see beauty. This is beauty. They weren't talking about her coming out and dressed in full garment. But actually, it would be promiscuous. It would be that she would come out promiscuously dressed. Possibly, some commentators even said, come out naked before the men, that they could see her beauty. Now, again, he's drunk. You'd have to be an idiot to bring your wife out or ask her to come out and do something like that. But he is an idiot right now. He's not thinking straight. And so, uh, verse 12, but Queen Vashti, refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So understand, Vashti is not a follower of God, yet she has enough good sense to know, I'm not going to go out there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to shield myself from those men. I'm not going to go out and become uh, a sex object for them to just look upon. Now, God has a way for women. And every man who has a wife should try to the best of his ability to present his wife in the way of the Lord, to never do anything that would cause her to do something that God would say is wrong. And no man would try to embarrass his wife publicly I have, uh, on occasion, especially when I was younger, you'd hear a man talking about his wife in their intimacy. And I used to get angry. And I would say something many times. I would say, what are you, what are you doing? Are you not, you understand what you're doing right now? You're letting other men come into your bedroom. Something that is sacred between you and your wife. You're betraying her. God has something to say about all of that. Take your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to be careful because I want to preach some of this on Sunday, possibly. We're going to be in the second part of that series uh, about Adam and Eve. And we're going to cover the fall. We're going to cover their, their sin and the curse that's on them and the fallout of that sin. But I also want to cover some of this. But I want to just refer to it tonight. It came to mind today as I was preparing. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 1 through 7, Peter speaking to Christians. He said, Likewise, wives, 
be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So God's giving a word to the wives, and He's saying, I want you to come under the headship of your husband. Come under the headship. And that's not a green light for a man to treat his wife like a slave, like she's less than him. Again, I said it Sunday, I'll say it again, and I'll explain it more on Sunday, but we are equal in position, diverse in our function. That's how men and women are before God, equal in our position, diverse in the role that God has given to each of us. And here he's saying to the woman, how you handle yourself will either help to turn your husband to the Lord or work against that, turning him away from the Lord. When they see, here's the thing, they may be one without a word by the conduct of, your, of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. In other words, don't let that be the focus of your life and your beauty. It's not the dress. It's not the, the, the jewelry. It's not the makeup that makes you beautiful in the eyes of God. Look what it says. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is what? Very precious. Any man who tries to put his wife on display for external beauty and encourages her to lower her standard, that man is not acting as a man of God. A man of God will stand and support his wife in the things that God sees as very precious. He too will see it that way. Very important. I remember when I was dating Rini, we had started dating. She grew up in the Methodist church. I grew up in uh, the Church of God. So our church was all about holiness. That was the big theme song, holiness, which it fleshed out oftentimes as legalism. There's certain things you don't do. And if you don't do those things, then you're, you're in good standing with God. Um, ridiculous. But her church... It was much more liberal. It was relaxed. Rini, when she was a teenager, they, the, the, the church was by the ocean. So she would wear her bathing suit under her dress. And when church would let out, she'd peel off that dress and she'd, in her bathing suit, go to the beach. Uh, there was one Sunday where church had let out. They had a guest preacher. He was a young man. And the, the pastor, Rini's pastor, said, uh, there's somebody I want you to meet. There's this young lady in our church. She's a wonderful person. And he, he, he saw her in the back. Rini, come up. She came walking up, and she's in, her, she's in her dress, but she had taken her shoes off. She's walking up front with her shoes off. And that guy looked at her and went, mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. So when we started dating, she would go to the beach, and she, like all the girls in that time in Daytona, you wear a two-piece bathing suit. Now, a two-piece in that day wasn't anything like a two-piece today. We do know that. But it was still a two-piece. 
And I remember, I was not under some kind of a legalistic, uh, you know, heavy hand or anything, but I knew enough that I didn't want this girl who I felt very, you know, I was very interested in her. I didn't want her to be seen by others in the wrong way. And I remember saying as we got, I didn't say anything early on, but then we started to really date, and I said, Rini, can I just be honest with you? I think you are more beautiful in a one-piece than in a two-piece. You're more beautiful because, because that part of you is hidden. It's, God knows you, and one day your husband will know you. But you don't need to let everybody else know you that way. Now, she could have slapped me in the face and said, get out of here. She didn't because God had been working on her heart. And she never wore a, a two-piece again. And that's just the beauty of it. And I, I, I wanted to protect her. This king is doing the opposite. He's putting his wife on display while he's drunk and everybody in the room is drunk. And just imagine the thoughts going through their mind. And she, God bless her, she said, no way. That's not going to happen. Uh, he said in verse 5 of 1 Peter, let's stay there for a second. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, verse 5. For this is how this gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, by coming under their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, don't misread that. In that day, using that terminology was common, and it didn't mean he would lord over you. He would treat you like a slave. That's not what, she, what the Scripture is saying about Sarah. It, it just meant, I recognize, God has called him to the position of spiritual head of our home. And God's called me to come under his spiritual leadership. It doesn't mean that I can't have a better spiritual thought than he has. We're equal in position, diverse in function. And she says further, and, her, and you are her children, ladies, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What is the fear today? He'll abuse me if I come under his headship. If I come under and do it that way, then I'll be made fun of in the world because it's all a... I mean, that movie Barbie, honestly, the, the whole purpose of the movie is to put men down and to separate men from women. It's terrible. And by the way, they said that the, the, the greatest demographic of people that are going to that movie are moms with their daughters. This is what's being poured into these young ladies pollution, and mom is signing off on it. Now, some, I'm sure, didn't know it would be that. They thought it would be something totally different. But a lot of them knew because they've read about it, and they still took their daughter. He's, so so don't, be, don't not do it out of fear. Don't let fear keep you from following this beautiful picture of God that God has given a husband and a wife and how they function together, and they complement one another. And then he says in verse 7 to the men, this is huge, 
he spent six verses on the women and only one verse on the men. But the one verse levels men. It's even stronger than the six, the six verses. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives, here it is, in an understanding way, showing honor to the, wimp, to the woman as the weaker vessel. And he's speaking physically, not speaking emotionally, mentally, spiritually. But most women aren't as strong as most men. That's a given. Since they are heirs, here's why you treat them with, in an understanding way and you show honor to them. Because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. You're not ahead of them. God's given them every ounce of grace He's given you. He's given them the ability to be spiritual women of God, just like He's called you to be a spiritual man of God. So that, And here it is. Look at this. You need to do this so that your prayers may not be hindered. He didn't say anything about that to the women. But to the man that has responsibility for leading his family well and loving his wife as she respects his leadership, he says, if you don't do it, your prayers are going to be hindered. you got to do this to be a man of God. Stop praying to me when you're treating your wife less than what she really is. So now you go back, we go back, and we see this sad situation, even today in our society, where women now, they don't want to be under the man. They don't want, in a, in a marriage relationship. And they want to separate from men completely. I've said this before, I'll say it again. I challenge you to go and read the Black Lives Matter mandate, their purpose statement. In the purpose statement, they talk about getting behind and supporting all the different kinds of people, the LGBTQ, whatever, IA+, supporting them, supporting women. Nothing about bringing men into the picture at all. Nothing about men. People can say all day long how BLM is something we should all support this no, I'm sorry, I will not support something that degrades and, re and turns inside out, perverts the role that God has created for man and woman to be together. There's a reason why in the inner city, 75% of the homes do not have a man present. 75% are women raising their children alone. And they're celebrated for that. What is there to celebrate about that? God wants husbands and wives to be together to raise kids. Amen? And so you say, well, pastor, that's just the way it is. I'm not here to tell you how it is. I'm here to tell you how it ought to be. That's what the Word of God compels me to do. Amen? Okay, so let's get back to verse 13. We're about to finish up. Don't worry. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure, turned toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena and Shathar and Admatha and Tarkish and Miras and Marcina and Memukin. I don't know how you say all those names, but anyway, we got, we got, we got through it, okay? Uh, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of the king delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukam said in the presence of the king and the officials, 
not only against the king has Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Hasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Hasuerus commanded Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. So they're worried about covering their own rear ends and not wanting women to rise up. But that's why we have a, that's why we have a feminist movement, because, because of men who abused women, because of machoism. That's why that exists. Now, that's not a reason. That's not a good reason. You don't change everything out of fear. You, you just look beyond those who have abused it, the chauvinists, and you go and you find the men who are honestly following God, and you still point women towards being married to those men. But here, man, we have too much to lose. Now she's going to rise up, tell the women are going to hear about it, and they're going to rise up against their husbands. We're going to be in real trouble here. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same thing to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti, the queen, is never again to come before King Hasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. That's controlling women. That's just a terrible thing. Verse 21, this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king as Mukim uh, uh, proposed. And he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every uh, province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Sad. So he heeded the vice of this one man, and he showed himself to be unreasonable, and he showed himself to be wrong. He was wrong. He should have honored the dignity of his wife, and said, guys, you know what? What I asked my wife to do was wrong. I was drunk, and she did the right thing. I did the wrong thing. That's what he should have said to those guys. But see, he's with the boys, and that's not going to happen, and it didn't happen. On one occasion, a Ahasuerus executed. This guy, he was known for doing wrong things. He executed uh, the builders of a bridge because, get this, the ocean had a storm and it came in along the shore and it wiped out the work that had been done. So he executed the guy who built the wall. Then he put out an edict. Listen to this now. I'm not making this up. He commanded that the water and the waves be whipped and chained to punish the sea. What an idiot. Chauvinism at its worst. So the purpose for the harsh treatment of Vashti was so that she would not set a bad example for other women in Persia. He wanted to reinforce the idea of a man's leadership in the home. Listen, God, listen, ladies. Don't let fear keep you from following God's plan. Men are called to the role of headship. But headship looks like a man who serves and loves his wife. 
That's the beauty of headship. The enemy wants you to be in fear that the man will rule over you and you won't have a word in anything. My wife has a word in every decision that we make. And there are times where God spoke through her to me and it was the right thing. I was wrong, she was right. That's the beauty of a complementarian view. Yet my wife, even in those situations, would say to me, but you have the final say. I'm going to give it to you because you're the one who God's called to be the head. There's this beautiful picture. And then there's other things she's called to that I'm not called to. And together we make, a, we make it. It works. Amen? That's the beauty of it. So, so this story is so far is everything the Bible disagrees with. Male headship in the home has nothing to do with overpowering or ordering the wife around. It has to do with the loving leadership and respectful response of a, of a wife, the loving leadership of a husband. Paul's instruction to wives was, was summed up like this in Ephesians 5.33. He said, let the wife see that she respects her husband. She's to respect him. See, a woman needs security. She needs safety. A woman needs a connection emotionally with the man, that he hears her heart. A woman needs communication. A man needs physical intimacy. That's important to him. He needs words of affirmation. That's the respect. Not because he's right in everything, but because you are standing with him and, and believing. You're encouraging him. So a man's doing something that's right. He's making a change in his life for the sake of the marriage or the, for the children. And as a woman, you have a, he's going to mess up a little bit, and you're going to either become a nag over that thing that he's messed up in, or you're going to resist that and continue to believe in him and say, hey, it, I don't think that was the right way, but I still believe in you, and you're still my husband, and I support you. That, that shows a respect. That turns a man on. Now he turns and he says, how can I continue to grow and be a better man of God? What turns a man off is nagging. In fact, the scripture says that when a woman nags, it leads a man to neglect. The scripture several times says, it's better for a man to live on the corner of his roof than have to live in a house with a blubbering wife that's constantly nagging him about things. So, nagging leads to neglect. You want to win your husband? Stop nagging. You want, to, you want to honor your wife and cherish her? Don't do anything that would take away from the beauty that she has on the inside. You support that, and you protect her. You protect her. It's a beautiful thing. Marriage is a beautiful thing when it's done God's way. Amen? Well, obviously this king doesn't think so. And he's going to throw her on the scrap heap and find him a new one. And, but God's going to be working in this king, too, in this story. He, he works on the king. So this is kind of a cool story. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time tonight to be in the Word. And thank you that you have, have granted us the opportunity to join you in your perfect will. 
And when we fall short, you don't throw us on the scrap heap, but you continue to encourage us and you continue to, to rebuild us and restore us when we humble up and we confess sin and we repent of it. You're a God that never quits on us. Oh, may we be the same with our spouses. And more importantly, Lord, as we study this story, may we see how you never quit on certain people that start out very rough around the edges. Your work was done, and we're thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, chapter 2. We'll dig in. Hey, there's some more coffee. There's, there's uh, some more refreshment. Help yourself. God bless each of you. Thank you for being here.